Welcome to City on a Hill Church, Forest Hills podcast. We exist to lead people to love, trust, and follow Jesus in everyday life. We're glad you're here, and thanks for listening. More information on the life and mission of City on a Hill Church can be found at coahforesthills.org. This morning, we are back in the book of Genesis. Uh, After a couple of weeks off, uh, we took a couple of weeks to look at the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus as we were looking toward Easter. Uh, A couple of weeks ago, we looked at Palm Sunday and how Jesus is the king that you and I all desire and want and need, and how he brings a kingdom that is so much different than the kingdom that you and I uh, would establish. Jesus brings a kingdom where he lays his life down for us so that uh, so that we could uh, enter his kingdom through his work. Uh, last week, we looked at Easter and the resurrection and how the resurrection is our hope and how Jesus's resurrection is good news for the brokenhearted, how it's good news for those who are, are fearful, those who are doubting, those who need forgiveness, which, you know, spoiler alert, is all of us. And so uh, that, that's good news for us. And so today we're back in the book of Genesis. So if you're new with us, you haven't been with us through Genesis, um, or you just want a refresher, uh, Genesis is really a story broken up into two big parts or two big acts. Uh, Genesis 1 through 11, which we covered in the fall, is how God created a whole world for a people. God created the world, Genesis 1. Uh, he created it out of nothing, and he created it to be good, that the world was good, that it was going to live forever and last forever and be a blessing, um, that he created people, man and woman, in God's image, meaning that every single person has inherent value, dignity and worth, meaning that every person matters, not because of what you do or what you bring to the table, but simply because God created you. But then we notice how sin entered the world and just wrecked everything and how the rest of the book is honestly how all of that plays out, how the world is just wrecked because sin has entered the world. Death has entered the world. Decay has entered the world. And you and I even feel the effects of that every single Day. A couple of years ago, I serve in a capacity in the city as, as a chapel leader for the Red Sox, which I actually will be leaving right after the service. Uh, I'm not being rude. I just got to go run to a chapel service after this. But a couple of years ago, one of the pitchers had turned 30, and he said, man, I, I said, how does it feel to be 30? He said, man, I just woke up and everything hurt. And I said, well, welcome to your 30s. Um, we understand the decay of, of being human because we live in a broken world. And so we see the story beginning to narrow down into uh, the story about one man and his family. And so we see in Genesis chapter 12, the story picks up with Abraham and his family, and it carries us through the rest of the book of Genesis, where now a new people has come to bless the whole world. And it would start with this one man and his family, his wife, Sarah, they would have a son, and then that would multiply into a nation who would bless everyone. And so Abraham is called out of a land called Ur in Genesis 12, which would be about modern-day Iraq. Uh, God promises him, promises him a land, possessions, and ultimately a people. And there's this story of infertility that goes on for several chapters leading into chapters 21 and 22 when Abraham and Sarah have a child at the ripe old age of 190, uh, Abraham being 100, Sarah being 90, God comes through and it's all leading to a day when there would be a Messiah through these people who would heal what was broken in the world and bless Everyone, And so we come to Genesis chapter 23 after this seeming climax of God coming through and his promises. And I'm going to be honest, it's a, it seems like a really odd addition to the story. It's, it seems like sort of a, of a side story. If you've, if you've watched Ted Lasso and you've seen that really weird Coach Beard episode, 
Um, if you've not watched it, just trust me. It's like, it's, it's like an acid trip. Like you don't know what's going on there. It feels like this is just an aside to the story. We see Sarah's death and we see Abraham mourning the death. And then it seems like there's this really strange business deal that happens. Like, like what is the point of this passage? And if you look and read on through the rest of Genesis 23, God's name isn't even mentioned directly. The covenant's not mentioned. The promises of God are not mentioned. Just the legal terms of a business agreement are mentioned. And so why does this matter? Why do all the details of this matter? Over the last couple of years, I've been reading a lot of Tolkien, been reading a lot of Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit and The Silmarillion. And one thing that Tolkien does really well is give you details. He will describe a leaf or a blade of grass or a people or where they come from. And it can get, it's really easy to just kind of gloss over as you're reading it, wondering, do these details really matter? But what I began to realize is that they do matter. They matter to the author because the author is trying to communicate something about his world, but is also signaling some things that are going to happen later on down the road. This story matters to Abraham, but it also matters to God. If you notice the amount of detail in this passage, it's very different than every other death announcement through the book of Genesis. In Genesis, it would say that someone lived, they lived X number of years, they were the son of so-and-so, and then they died. But we notice here that Abraham weeps. It says in verse 2 that he wept for Sarah. And this is the first time in the Old Testament that it is described as a person weeping over the dead. This is deeply personal for Abraham. And he goes to great pains through this story to, to secure a land for his wife, Sarah, to be buried in. And so it matters a lot to Abraham, but it also matters to God. Because this story is directly tied to the promises of God, and it's the first signal that that promise of a land that his people would live in forever would come true. And so what Abraham is doing is demonstrating incredible faith in the midst of one of life's hardest moments. In the face of death and losing the one that he loved more than anyone else, he is having to choose to believe that God is still good and having to choose to believe that God will still come through on his promises. And what this passage shows you and I is that faith gives you and I the framework to deal with the hardest stuff in life. Faith gives us the framework to deal with pain, to deal with suffering, to deal with with death. And here's what those who have found hope in God find, is that he is faithful in every circumstance, or as the old uh, theologians used to say, that our only hope in life and death is that we belong to God. And so the question is, is how do future promises help you now? How does a promise of eternal life help you when you go to work tomorrow? How does the future, the promise of a future help you when everything around you seems to be falling apart? If you look at real estate in Boston, first of all, it will make you cry. But second of all, you see some interesting things when you look at some of these listings. Uh, the other day, I was looking at an empty lot, and it was, worth, it was a lot of money. And, and it said on the lot, it said that builders will do due diligence. What does that mean? It means that they are going to check the land to make sure that it's suitable, that you could actually build upon it, that you could get utilities to the land, and that everything that you would need would be there to build on. What future promises do is they give you a foundation to build your life on. There's something that you can build your life on with present hope because of future promises. And this is faith. That we trust God is faithful and that gives us the faith to obey 
today. So today we're going to look at how the future, the promises that God gives us, make three present realities possible. The first of those is this, loss can lead to blessing. It seems like a really backward statement, right? Loss can lead to blessing. But if you look at verse 1, we see Sarah and in the life she lived, that Sarah lived 127 years. And in those few words in that statement, in 127 years, Sarah packed in a lot of life. And we have the privilege of seeing this life over 62 years of her story that we get to see. She lived a full life. She was blessed beyond imagination. She had the faith to leave with her husband, Abraham, to leave home, everything that she'd ever known, mom and dad and everybody, and leave all of that and go to the land that God had promised them in Canaan. She had seen God come through on his promises, but she'd also experienced in those 127 years a lot of heartache and a lot of hardship and a lot of difficult circumstances. She had been childless for 90 years, and we've talked a lot about this, about how in that culture, that was shameful to, to, to be barren, to be childless, to be infertile. She had endured the lies of her husband twice, where he had lied, weird story, and said, she's my sister, and she ended up in the house of some other man. She endured the scorn of other people. And so when we think of a blessed life, you and I often only think about the positive stuff. We only think about the stuff when we're winning, when things are turning out well for us. And so when someone compliments you and they notice your success, they notice what's going on in your life, you seem like some, some, some good stuff's going on. If you ever want to appear humble, what do you say? I'm, I'm just blessed. I'm, I'm just blessed. And what we often mean when we say that is that we equate blessing with success. That to be blessed means that we're successful. To be blessed means that we have a good job. To be blessed means that we have the right type of relationship. To be blessed means that nothing is going wrong in our lives. But part of the way that the Bible defines blessing is it defines it as flourishing that satisfies your soul. Not your outward circumstances, but the contentment of your heart. So what you think is is blessing is what you look to to satisfy you, to give you peace, and to become an anchor or a foundation for your life that you build on. And if you and I say that blessing is success, if blessing is relationship, if blessing is what we do for a job, then it is up to you or I to bless ourselves. It's about how much money you can make. It's about living comfortably, and it's ultimately about living for me. And if I live for me, if I'm living for myself and I have to earn all of these things in order to be blessed, there is no way that loss could lead to life. There's no way that losing could lead to blessing. And so if blessing is equal to achievement or equal to accumulating, then you have to get yours. And the worst possible outcome is that you lose. And if that's the way you think of blessing, every single one of us loses. Because when you get to the end of this life, you've probably heard it said, you can't take anything with you. You don't take your bank account with you. You don't take your house with you. You don't take your car with you. You don't take your clothing with you. You don't take your relationships with you. You leave with nothing. And if that's what blessing is, then all of us lose. But the message of the Bible is actually that losing leads to gain. Losing leads to blessing. That if you look away from yourself, if you look away from your own self-interest, if you stop defining good on your own terms, you can actually find life and you can count every loss as gain that's greater in Christ. 
And Sarah does this. Sarah goes to a land that was not her own. She waited pretty imperfectly, as we've seen over the last couple of months. She stopped taking her future into her own hands, and she had lost so much. She lost security, she lost familiarity, she lost honor, and she received a greater joy in God through seeing his promises come to fruition through her loss. And we see that also this is the way of Jesus. If you look all the way into the New Testament at the Beatitudes, which is this section of Jesus' teaching, the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, this is what blesses you. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. It goes on, blessed are the, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemaker, those who are persecuted for my name's sake. The way of Jesus is the downward way which leads to life. And this is why Jesus continued in Matthew chapter 10, verse 39, that whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And Sarah experienced this in such a beautiful way, and we actually see that she experiences the promises of God in some ways before Abraham did. She experienced the promise of a son before Abraham, because who would have been the first one to know that she was pregnant? Sarah would have. She'd have felt that first kick. She would have felt the hiccups in her stomach. She would have had a unique connection to this little boy whose name meant laughter, And she actually sees this blessing before Abraham does in her death, because where she is buried in verse 2 is no mistake. Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, which roughly translates to city of four, may have been four cities kind of jammed together, like Boston neighborhoods all slammed together. It said that is Hebron in the land of Canaan. And if you go all the way to verse 19, it says that she was uh, buried, his wife, in, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is in Hebron in the land of Canaan. This matters because this was a huge honor, because where you were buried was where your home was. She was the first to experience an eternal home in the place that God had promised. Even her death became gain. And as you consider the cost of following Jesus, I want you to know that whatever you may give up for the sake of following Jesus is worth it because your reward is so much greater. That you give up earthly riches for the riches of heaven, that you give up earthly sorrow for heavenly joy, that you have earthly loss and get heavenly gain. And this actually answers one of the biggest objections to Christianity is what do you do with death? Why do people die? And the reality is is that it's not just Christians that have to answer that question. Everybody has to answer that question. Even if you're not a religious person, you still have to answer the question, what do you do with death? Every worldview, every religion has to answer this question, and I don't think others have a better answer. If there's no meaning, and it's just random, then why weep? If we just cease to exist and there's nothing beyond this, then death is just another reality. If if it's karma, then it's your fault, right? But what's unique about Christianity is you can both fully hurt and fully hope. You can fully hurt and fully hope. 
Because Christianity doesn't say that you just need to ignore your feelings or you need to avoid them or find some practice that keeps you from, from, from feeling all the feelings of death. You can actually weep and cry and mourn and have deep sorrow because God is with you in the midst of it. And he also promises that one day he will wipe away every tear and undo every injustice. But you can also fully hope. You can grieve as one with hope that the resurrection is coming. That because as we celebrated last week, that Jesus rose from the dead, that means that there is a resurrection for those who know him. All things will be made new and all the promises will find their yes and amen in Jesus. Now, secondly, we need to look at how Abraham got this field. This is really important to understanding how we have hope in everyday life. Secondly, the, the reality that's true is that we, the trust in God shapes your actions and desires. Trust in God and his promises shape your actions and desires. Now, Abraham goes to great lengths to secure this field. We see in verse 3 that he's weeping, he's mourned. There would have been a, a period of mourning that would have been customary at this time. And that he goes to the Hittites, the people who were the owners of the land. And if you look at verse 10, we see that this would have occurred in the gate of the city. Now, to give a little bit of context, that would be similar to going to the courthouse. Um, they would go to you, go to the courthouse. That's where legal proceedings would happen. They would happen in the gate. And so they would stand there in the gate of the city in front of all of these people. And it says that Abraham goes, and he admits this right out the gate. He says in verse 4, I am a sojourner and a foreigner among you. What does that mean? It means that Abraham has absolutely no rights. He has no right to come before them and ask them for anything. He has no right to even try to buy anything from them. He couldn't just buy land. We have, we have some people in our church who have had to get uh, different types of visas to come here for their PhDs, and I'm shocked at the limitations they have around their ability to work. In this world, you had no rights. And so Abraham is going to them and he's hoping that they will show him grace and favor and allow him to bury his wife there. He says, I'm a sojourner and a foreigner among you. Give me property among you for, the, for a burying place that I may bury my, uh, my dead out of my sight. And they give him this favor, verse 5 and 6. It says, hear us, my Lord. You are a prince of God among us. Abraham had garnered great favor among them. They had seen God's hand upon him, and they wanted to bless him. And they go on and they say, bury your dead. Bury your dead here in the choices of our tomb. So you can have any spot that you want. Just bury your wife, bury your people in the tomb. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. It seems like the, the, the doors are just blowing open for blessing and we see a really strange interaction begin to happen. Abraham has a specific plot in mind. Abraham rose, verse 7, and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land, verse 8. And he said to them, if you're willing and I should bury my wife out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. It is at the end of his field. If you've ever had to select a burial plot, sometimes you want it to be under a certain tree or you want it to be on a certain hill or, or a memorable place. Abraham has a place that he wants the burial spot to be, but he does something really curious. They're willing to give it to him, and he says, for the full price, let him give it to me and in your presence as property for a burial place, burying place. He doesn't just want a place to bury his dead. He wants a stake in the land. 
And this, this really strange interaction goes back and forth in verses 11 through 13, where it feels like two friends are trying to argue over who's going to pay the bill. You ever had that argument? No, no, let me pay, let me pay. And you're just kind of hoping your friend will say one more time before they actually pay. That's kind of what's going on here. They're going back and forth. Verse 11 uh, Ephron says to, uh, uh, says to him, he says, my Lord, hear me. No, I give you the field and I give you the cave that is in it in the sight of the sons of my people. I give it to you, bury your dead. They're just going back and forth, trying to out honor one another. Abraham bowed down before the people of the land. Verse 13, he said to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, but if you will hear me, I give the price of the field, accept it from me that I may bury my dead there. Ephron finally gets tired of it. He says, okay. And he answers Abraham, verse 15, my Lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between you and me? Bury your dead. And Abraham goes on to pay him the price of the land. I mean, what exactly is happening here? I mean, is Abraham the worst negotiator in the world? I remember years ago, Amy and I were buying our first grown-up car, our first brand-new car, and I mean, we're young, and we go into this place, and the guy, the salesman, just had to smell blood because he knew he was going to rip us off. And we walk in. It's this 2005 Silverado. It's four doors, four-wheel drive. We're in Colorado Springs. I'm like, this is the car we need. We walk in, and here, here's the sticker price, and I'm just like so naive. I'm like, I, I just can't pay that. And he's like, well, I could probably take a couple hundred dollars off. And I was like, okay, we'll sign. You know, and like, and like we got suckered. It feels like that's what Abraham's doing. He's just getting suckered. But if you understand the promises of God, it makes perfect sense why Abraham's doing this. Abraham makes his decision to ensure that the land that God had promised him would be his possession. Because what he knows is that nothing is really free. Free land is insecure land. Free land comes with obligations. In our first church plant, we, uh, we were offered this place to meet in downtown Birmingham called the German Club. It was a German heritage bar. They had this massive Oktoberfest every year, and they said you can meet there for free. And we walk in the first time, and there's like villages of German children all along the walls, and they made all these promises. Yeah, we'll remodel this, and we'll let you do this. We didn't get to do any of it because we weren't paying them any rent. We had no leverage. Abraham knows this, that one day if he buries his family in this field, Ephraim might come back and say, you know what? I don't like how you looked at me. I don't like the color of your shirt. I, I want my land back. His kids may come back one day and say, we didn't agree to this. Free use gives no legal standing in the land. And what he's doing in that moment is purchasing a place in the land forever. He goes to great lengths to buy a burial place for his family to stake his claim and say, this is our home. He made a decision based on his trust in what God had already promised him, believing that God is good. And this gave him confidence to obey because of the future promises that God had given him. Now, can your decisions make God's promises come true? No. It's not that Abraham did this and then God decided, okay, now it's true. But what you can do is you can live into God's promises for you. And you can see the blessing that comes with obeying God by faith because faith says, God, I see your commands. I I see what you're asking me to do. I I I see what you're asking me to deny or lay down or take up and I'll do it because your promises are better and they lead to life. So what is one step of obedience that God is asking you to take by faith 
based on his promises? Is there some sort of, of change that needs to happen in the way that you're living? Maybe God's calling you to serve others in a particular way. Maybe it's situational, like it's your job, like you're faced with the situation, do I act ethically and and morally and biblically, or do I do what it takes to get ahead? Maybe it's your housing, and you're trying to figure out, where do I live? Do I live just in the most comfortable spot possible, or do I take the the mission of God and what God's doing in the city of Boston into account, thinking, how how could I help more people know Jesus through where I live? Maybe it's it's a relationship that maybe you're not living in the most God-honoring way towards someone else. What's keeping you from trusting? What's keeping you from obeying? What would trusting God change in your life? But also we see that trusting God's promises shapes your desires. We see here in Abraham's story that his desires for seemingly the first time are solely after God and his glory. And it does this in three ways, that Abraham is not willing to settle for less. That if we desire what God desires over time, we will not settle for less than God getting the glory that he deserves. He did not want to let them give him the land because he knew that if he did, they could take credit for it. He wanted God alone to get the credit. Verse 18 is, as God shapes us, we want to take hold of the promises that God has for us. It says in verse 18 that to Abraham it was given as a possession in the presence of the Hittites. This became his. We take hold of the promises that are ours. And lastly, that he, it grows a desire to be with God. Verse 19, he chose a spot in a land that was the exact same spot that God had shown up to him 20 years before and reminded him of his faithfulness. He became so dissatisfied with the lesser things of the world around him, of, of money and power and worldly success. He said, my hope is in you alone. John Piper puts it this way. He says, the promises of God are our real home, and we have seen them from afar and have greeted them and tasted them, and they have made us restless and uneasy. They have begun to shape our whole way of seeing and thinking and feeling. They have colored our values and goals and desires. We have been put out of sync with this world because our treasure is in heaven. How do your desires need to change? What are the promises that you can lean into? And one of those is just simply the forgiveness of sin. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, Jesus promises that he can take away the penalty of your sin through the cross. But if you're a follower of Jesus, sometimes we say, well, I know that Jesus died for my sin, but why do I keep on sinning? Why do I keep on doing the things that I don't want to do? We also see that God can free us from the power of sin. And what begins to happen over time as we long after God as he begins to shape our desires to free us from sin so that we desire after the things that God desires. The last reality that faith makes possible is this, is that the best is yet to come. The best is yet to come. It is fascinating to me that the only piece of land in the promised land that Abraham ever owned was a burial plot. He didn't own a house. He didn't own a farm. He had on a stitch of land other than this little burial plot. And it seems really strange because for 11 chapters, over 60 some odd years, we have seen God promising a people and a land and a bunch of possessions. But if you continue in the book of Genesis, you actually begin to see that every single person who's being buried makes a huge deal about having their bones buried in this location. They made a massive deal about it. 
The reason is they knew that God was going to bring blessing later, a greater blessing, and that their burial in the land was the first taste of eternal glory. Hebrews chapter 11 recalls the faith of all of these people. It recalls the faith of Abraham who left his homeland and Sarah who waited on his son and and Isaac and Jacob and all of these ancestors of the faith who were longing for the promises of God. And in verse 13, it says something really, really incredible. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised. Every single one of them got a little taste of what the promise would be. But having seen them and greeted them, the promises from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. And so it goes on to say that they knew that the true fulfillment of the promises of God, that we would taste in part now, we would get in whole later. Verses 14 through 16, for people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land, the land that they were going to be buried in, from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. What did they know? They knew that this life could not contain the promises of God. They knew that God's promises were not canceled by death, that his promises were eternal, and they wanted to be buried there because they expected a resurrection would come. And that that resurrection meant that they would be the people of God forever with him. And so what Abraham knew is that he would see Sarah again. What Abraham knew is that he could be with God forever. And so what does this mean for you and I? It means that like Abraham in Christ, you can begin to experience the life that Jesus promises right now. And you can begin to experience it with an eye toward a truer hope to come, that what you experience in part now, the forgiveness that you experience now, the friendship that you experience now, the community that you experience now, the relief of guilt and shame and fear that you experience now, you will one day in full glory experience with God for eternity. And Jesus says this in his high priestly prayer, right as he's about to leave the earth, he's talking to his disciples in John 17, and he says these words in verse 3, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Eternal life means knowing Christ. And what this means is that if you know Christ, you have started to experience life the moment that you gave your life to him. And if you don't yet know Christ, you can know him. You can experience forgiveness. You can receive meaning and purpose and know what it means to be loved as the child of God. You begin to experience in part what you will one day experience in full. So how do you start enjoying this new life now? The first thing you need to do is to seek to know God through a relationship with Jesus. If you don't yet know Jesus, surrender your life to him today. If you do know him, I pray that you would seek to know him even more, that you can know and experience to the fullest degree possible in looking toward the future. Secondly, we need to make choices in light of God's promises. We need to be thinking about the promises that we have before God and make choices in light of those. And then lastly, letting the future that we have, the future promises we have provide present hope. All of this is only possible because of Jesus. 
The hope that Abraham and Sarah and all their descendants have was in a Messiah who would come one day to make these things true is that Jesus has gone and secured a place for us. That Jesus secured a home for you. That like Abraham, you were a stranger and an alien, meaning that you had no right to anything yet through the work of Christ who paid the cost for you. You've received an inheritance in God by grace. You can have hope because what you experience in part now, you will experience in full because Jesus has risen from the dead and given all good things to you through faith. Let's pray. 